A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to our podcast, Life After the Letters. I'm Amelie. And I'm Suba. We're friends that met whilst working our first shifts as junior doctors. And we're here to talk about the stories and challenges that we face every day. So, hey, Amelie. Hey, Suba Duba. How's things? How's tricks, as I say? <laughs> I hate the fact that you're saying tricks. <laughs> Suba's got some new lingo, guys. I'm, I don't trying know... to be, I'm trying to be a cool new person. I don't know where it's come from. <laughs> I don't know whether she's having a midlife crisis. Quarter life crisis, mate. Quarter life crisis. Midlife? How, how soon do you think I'm going to die? <laughs> <laughs> so, we've just all changed over jobs. Yeah, yeah. Really exciting time, isn't it? I know. You've taken my old job. I have. I have moved into A&E. And you have gone on to Jerry's. You have literally moved into A&E because that's where you'll yeah. be living for the next four months of your life. My my work life, my social life. For real. Like, everything will be in a Do you remember that show when he presents you that red book and he's like, this is your life. That is literally going to be your <laughs> life literally. on A&E. Yeah. So enjoy the basement. <laughs> There's no windows. There aren't any windows. Why are there no windows? And regardless of whether you're there at nighttime, mm. whether you're there in the morning, mm. which I'll be, I'll be there at all times of the day at some point. No, so. But regardless, you won't even know what time of day it is. It'll be a good placement. Like I learned so much from the placement, and in like how how mm. to become more confident as a doctor, but having more faith in what I'm doing, thinking through things more clinically, mm. and what will make sense for a patient. So I think you'll. Enjoy it. I feel like it will be the making of your FTA. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I'm really... Uh, I was kind of a bit nervous, understandably. Ooh, just, you just, have nerves? Yeah, I get nerves, you know. I'm just human. <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit nervous about the rotor, the fact that it just looked so hectic, switching from okay. the shift switching around, and also just, like, seeing anything and everything under the sun. It's not even a specialty. It's, like, anything can come in, and you're making a decision on whether to... Mm-hmm admit or discharge um mm-hmm. but you're so well supported like you yeah. do have access to seniors all the time to go and discuss patients with have you been good at um getting support quickly yeah i mean i think that because i feel like last year no joke yeah. you used to take some time before you went yeah. to go and discuss it whereas i was the complete other way around i would just go and discuss straight away i think it's variable i mean if i feel if i feel confident and comfortable and i feel okay managing it then i'm okay managing it good. but i think i have a um Particularly in A&E, because you're making discharge and admit decisions, mm-hmm. I have a lower threshold to go to a consultant and be like, look... <laughs> yeah, babe, your threshold needs to be low. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Amelie, you've yes. moved on to Jerry's. I have. So tell us tell us how you're liking it, loving it. 
Geriatrics is just a different pace. <laughs> <laughs> like, I rock up to work at 8.30, slash 8.40. Slash no 8.50. Else... <laughs> the consultants rock up at 9am. By then, it looks like I've been, like, on it, checking out which patients come in early. But, um, no, it just feels really different to be on Jerry's. Yeah. Like, I think I'm just slowly getting used to it. I'm not sure I enjoy it fully as much as I enjoyed Amy when I first started on it. Yeah. But... I appreciate that it's just going to be, like, getting back into medicine because I've not done medicine for a good year. Yeah. More than a year, yeah. Wait. No, yeah. A year. Because it was your first job. Yeah, it was my first job, actually. So I haven't done it for a yeah. long while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, It feels weird, but it's good. It'd be nice to refresh on, like, the medical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to touch more on things like, um, you know, looking after a patient a lot more holistically. And mm-hmm. I know we were talking about um, Atul Gwande's book, like, Being Mortal. Big up Atul Gawande. Big up Atul Gawande. But just how that ties into, like, a Jerry's, you can use things like themes from that book so nicely in your practice. Yeah, that's totally true, actually. Because whenever I, like, I read any of the quotes he says, mm. either, like, as part of the chapters or just, like, randomly on the internet if I see yeah. a quote, it's just so interesting the way he looks at health and the way he looks at and um, what happens towards your end of life being, mm. like, the end years of your life rather yeah. than... Um, not, like, palliative medicine or anything. No, 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 no. But just the way people want to approach the end of their lives and what's important to them and actually it's not about getting someone back to 100% it's actually about getting them back to their baseline making sure they feel comfortable and putting things in place so that they're happy well and able to do things for themselves yeah and it'll be nice actually because you have that whole super MDT approach, which you kind of had in um, Ortho because you did oh, a bit I had of Ortho, ortho. slash Ortho Jerry's vibes. Yeah, I was going to say that Ortho job was Defo's Ortho Jerry's. <laughs> yeah, minus the medical help. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> Sorry guys, uh, I apologise. I have a cold, by the way. So if I do cough or sniff throughout, <laughs> then you know what's going on. There's a reason for it. But how are you enjoying your medical ward rounds, mate? I've got to say, Ooh. I do not miss a medical ward <laughs> <laughs> And like, you know, when you get to that point, we used to have an amazing gastro reg who was such a babe and he would get you like snacks and stuff, isn't it? Oh my gosh, I love him. I love him. I love him. He's actually the best. I completely forgot. So me and Suba, we didn't work on gastro at the same time. Yeah. We were, I worked on it first and Suba and worked second, afterwards. Yeah. But basically in our old hospital, there was this like lady who'd come around with her like sweets and chocolate tro- trolley. Basically and like, you know, from Harry Potter, like the train... Amazing. The train lady with the little snacks trolley. But only her, her snacks were so dope. They were like so she good. had some... What are those chocolates? Crunchies, Twixers, everything. I mean, she had stuff from back in the day. What old school things? Old school things. What? What did she have? I can't remember what it's called now. It's like a red packet. It's got gold wrapping paper. And I... Oh, the caramel one. Yeah. Carmack or something. No, (laughs) not Carmack. No, no. Oh, I love Carmack. It was like these little cubes. If anyone can remember what it's called, I would really be What grateful. is it? Was it chocolate? It was chocolate with caramel in the middle and a bit of a crunch to it. Anyway, great that chocolate. That sounds so good and I kind of want it now. I used to, And they used to be good prices. None of this pound rubbish that no, you get no, in Tesco's no, no, these no. days. It was economical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, that was our gastro placement food. But um, no, in gastro ward round, things were just a bit more fast paced than it oh, feels I guess like on yeah. geriatrics anyway. But I'm... Um, I'm sure I'll get used to it very yeah. soon and I'll yeah. start to enjoy it a little bit more. But yeah. now it just feels like a very different pace to A&E and what I'm used to. Yeah, it's complete 
uh, complete opposite to A&E, I can imagine. It's like it a, is, it from is. 100 to zero. Yeah, and weirdly, it's actually very different from psychiatry as well. Psychiatry oh, yeah. is not as slow as people may think. Mm. Yes, you're sitting down. Yes, mm. you've got your cup of tea, your, your cup of coffee. You are making me miss those psych ward rounds, like psych ward round day, where you just have like the biscuit tin, the coffee, the tea. You sit down. It's so great. And then each each of the tea member would take a turn at being like, yeah. "Oh, should I get the tea round?" And you go <laughs> up and you're like, you know, everyone's tea order. It's great times. Literally, my joy revolves around food at work. The audience, you really get to know us a lot and how much we have um, (laughs) an addiction to food. Speaking of addictions, good segue. Oh, yeah, smooth. We are great with these segues. (laughs) Um, We really wanted to talk about a topic um, that was interesting and has been popping up in the news just here and there. Yeah. But actually, the way that you came to it, Super, I think it's quite interesting. So do you want to share? Yeah, so I uh, recently went to California, for those of you that um, are following on Instagram, you'll already know. And on my flight across, I was, you know, dipping into the in-flight entertainment system. <laughs> so um, I watched what a bit you watch? of... So Kingsman Golden Circle. Great film. Great movie. Great film, great film. Really enjoyed that. Um, that also, is literally laugh out loud. And Colin Firth, Fun. like... First course, OG Bay. he's in it. He is in it. Like, love him. And then I kind of was, you know, craving a bit of intellectual stimulation. So <laughs> there I go into the little documentary <laughs> section and guess what I see? Who? My main man, Louis Theroux. <laughs> I love him. Literally, come Theroux. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dashing through the snow <laughs> sorry guys sorry guys that was an Xmas uh, Christmas jumper reference there yeah. but anyway so going back to uh, this documentary so it was about the the heroin epidemic in the US so I started watching it and this absolutely blew my mind and maybe I'm living in the dark here and this mm-hmm. you know you guys already know this but um the heroin epidemic in America was actually initially stemmed from overprescription of opiates for chronic pain by doctors um, and obviously it's a lot more complex than that. There was a lot of um, push from the pharmaceutical industry. There was obviously beliefs um, regarding medications and sort of trust between doctors and patients and all that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. but initially the trigger for the issues that America is now facing with, with heroin and, and other opiates that are being abused started with the overprescription of opiate medications mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for pain. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting the populations that in initially affected. So mm. you had a large population of lower social people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds who were working in manual like labouring kind of jobs. Mm. Um, and essentially, obviously, in those areas you'd be having all the chronic back pain from musculoskeletal pain, yes, osteoarthritis, exactly things that just come because you have a manual labour job. Yeah, um, and obviously they need some sort of pain relief and. Yeah. After you give them paracetamol, after you give them ibuprofen... What's next? What's next? It's... Opiates, mate. It's opiates. (laughs) It is opiates. That's next. That's it, isn't it? And you can see how, you know, initially when when we learn about the WHO pain ladder, Mm -hmm. that is for the management of acute pain. Yeah. But if this person's got a long-standing chronic issue where you know they need then they need to control their pain to get on with their job to provide for their families Mm -hmm. and maintain their lifestyle... Mm And, and to buy that health insurance, let's not forget. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? They mm-hmm. end up being hooked on these opiates. Mm-hmm. Um, and the US, I mean, you know, is facing a serious issue with it, but it's not alone. Like, it's mm-hmm. a worldwide problem. And the UK, in the UK, is becoming more and more of an issue. And yeah, it's interesting, actually, because I remember when we were discussing all the facts and figures from the cases, mm. things spurred off at the same time in the UK and the US. So... Can you remind me of your figures from the US and I'll just say mine from the UK and we can talk about that. So in the US, um, from the period of 1999 to 2016, mm-hmm. there have been about 350,000 opiate-related deaths. 
Mm. Let's just take a breath and think about that figure. Let's just take a breath. <laughs> Let's just let that one sink in. Mm. That's mad. Like three hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. people died from opiate related, you know, opiate related deaths. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting actually because the thing that struck me the most was. Mm. That was a threefold rise from 1999 or yeah. 1990s yeah. up until the to 2000s now, now yeah. um, when those figures just kind of went astronomical. Yeah. And a similar thing has happened in the UK where actually you've had 50,000 opioid-related mm. deaths in 2016, mm. which have quadrupled since 1999. And mm. you start to think, actually, what happened in these like ni- late 90s? Yeah. Um, that have what what has happened for number one us to be prescribing crazy amount number two for the numbers just to steadily been increasing and increasing because it's not like people's pain has been getting worse or you have more people in pain in the community because actually we've got less manual jobs don't we yeah precisely actually and it's not uh, and you know in these in these facts and figures they state that actually the level of reported pain in these countries has not gone up Mm mm-hmm so it's interesting to think what was the precursor to everything. And actually, when you do a lot of reading, actually not very much reading, when you do a little <laughs> bit of reading, you find out that Big Pharma had a lot to do with all of this. Yeah, so let's let's take a little step back in time. Let's rewind to the crazy 70s. Rewind. <laughs> so back in the 70s, right, there was a, uh, uh, a letter that was published in the US that kind of was taken by... <laughs> I thought you were going to give me the journal there, but no, the US. In the US. Let's keep it, <laughs> let's keep it vague. Um, and uh, Big Pharma basically took this letter, pinned all of their aggressive marketing using this as their evidence. So this, and our hopes and dreams, yes. Yeah, and destroyed a million lives. <laughs> so um, the letter says... Uh, okay, so it was, it was a, a, a study that was done in hospitalised medical patients, about 40,000 medical patients, and it was looking into the incidence of narcotic addiction. So there are about eleven to 12,000 patients who received at least one narcotic and only four cases of reasonable, well-documented addiction in patients who had no history of addiction. And the addiction was only considered major in one instance. Um, so the conclusion from this was that despite the widespread use of narcotic drugs, the development of addiction is rare in medical patients with no history of addiction. This letter has obviously since been completely shot down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at the time, this was used as evidence by pharma companies to really aggressively market mm-hmm. opiates to doctors um, for prescription of chronic pain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And obviously, in the US, they advertise uh, medications. So patients are seeing adverts for medications on TV. And you know, you're sitting at home with awful back pain, maybe with a little hot water bottle, yeah. put your legs up after a long day at work, having a cup of tea, and you're watching TV and you see this advert that says take um you know zapain or take mm-hmm. take this or t- try this new um analgesia mate and you probably see some man in a wheelchair jumping for joy yeah. out of the wheelchair into the sky yeah. and onto better pastures and you're going like. you're going to see that that scene of like you know where a guy's clutching his back and there's that like red <laughs> that red yeah overlay. that red glow yeah, yeah yeah and then suddenly like he pops his pill and that red glow becomes like blue and he's suddenly like <laughs> yeah. pain free and he's like you know I don't know like running in the Olympics or something <laughs> like, that's how it works isn't it and he's suddenly with his family and he's happy and his grandkids are there and mm-hmm. oh and you're you're sitting there with your pain and your hot water bottle and you're like mate I want to be living that life I want to be throwing my grandkids in the air I, I can't even so- stand up without pain I mean can we talk about these things are so insidious, the way that yeah, advertising yeah, even yeah. works. But actually, when you're talking about advertising and you're crossing that with health, 
it's so dangerous mm. because well I watch a lot of TV as you know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. of course I watch way as, too much as we do all right <laughs> yeah. right we're not alone in this are no we? I watch a special amount of TV <laughs> so I was watching something on Netflix it's called Take Your Pills it's actually yeah. a great documentary mm. I thought it was going to tell me a little bit more about the use of ADHD medications and how you have college kids all across America using them to mm. concentrate harder do better in exams and um, just because they're revising more not just because it's giving them any cognitive enhancements yeah um and i thought that'd be very interesting from that perspective but actually what it showed me was that people are trying are chasing an ideal and if Mm. the ideal is to be pain-free or the ideal is to be great at what you do in school and make the most of like your money and then make the most of your life actually you're just going to follow what professionals are telling you to do yeah so that hand in hand with um big pharma pushing it onto us that's difficult and it's something irresistible that you just wouldn't want to say no to as a patient or and also as a doctor yeah and I I kind of also want to add to this that don't you feel like there's an intrinsic belief sometimes in and and maybe this belief is so stupid and misplaced but Mm. there's an intrinsic belief that you have sometimes in that like that companies and people around you and systems that they're not trying to hurt you or take advantage of you and I kind of want to ties into a, a story that so I, I used to buy and I mean like please don't shade me out here guys but day soft contact lenses like is anyone else out there with day soft contact lenses on me? I've got them in my eyes right now let me just tell you something crazy so I used to always use them and I've always used them like literally for t- 10 years the only contacts I've used are day soft I so one of my friends is an optometrist so I feel I'm sorry guys I'm shocked because I've got them in my eyes right this second I mean this is going to blow your mind and also I mean this is information I got from my friend informally oh god tell me tell me informal information so we were in we were in Athens and like I had my contact lenses out and literally I'm laying in bed and she literally screams she screamed and we were like what's going on are you okay and she was like when was this when was this this was in the summer oh god in july she picks up my contact lens and she's like whose are these the and things that are in my eyes the right now are currently giving you vision right now oh my gosh <laughs> she picks them up and she's like whose are these and yeah. i was like very shamefully like raised my hand from the bed like it's mine yeah. and she's like don't use these like do not put these in your eye Why? and she was like it's just that the the product they use to make the contact lens is really not permeable to oxygen very much at all so your eyes and she was like do you use them every day how often do you use them and actually i had a nice pair of glasses at that point so in my continue, time continue continue so always digress Go but ahead. so my point was that i wasn't using them all the time but she was like look if you're using them all the time you are starving your corneas of you know being able to absorb the oxygen through your eye and that can be really dangerous. What is this lecture you're giving me? I'm a late. Now you know. Since then, I was like, you know what? I'm an, I'm a working gal. Like, I have a salary now. I don't need to be living this student life. So, <laughs> you're tossed. So sh- <laughs> you, you said don't shade me. You're shading me right now. <laughs> but anyways, look. So, after that, I was... But that was... To be honest... I'm sorry, guys. I'm literally feeling my eyes drying up <laughs> as we speak any longer. <laughs> my God. Amelie's eyes are like burning up as yeah, we, are, as we converse you know, you know that red colour you're talking about I can feel that around <laughs> my eyes right now but no it was just that, that mm. I had an intrinsic faith in the fact that wait hold on like if it's been licensed to be a product then surely it's safe and surely it's going to service me in the right way exactly mm. but you know then it's a kind of moment of recognising that oh hold on a second like companies have a lot of power and going back to Big Pharma Big Pharma has hella power like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they make more money in a year than mm-hmm. most countries make in a year. Yeah. Like, their 
turnover is bigger than the country's GDP is like and to be honest that money is nonsensical and it does doesn't even make sense to me when you put 40 zeros behind something yeah Yeah. sure sure, a trillion whatever I just don't know what that actually means it loses it loses context Mm -hmm. and actually because of that money they have so much power and influence and they can lobby the government they can you know they have they have so much control Mm -hmm. and that's terrifying it is terrifying and it's when you think it's also when you're thinking about these things we're talking about these things all the time. And maybe mm. it's just like my circles that talk about these things. Mm. But when you look at the NRA, for example, mm. and then you're looking at um, everything that's happening with guns and gun violence in America, yeah. everyone's saying, no, we don't want this. This is scary. We need to protect our children. We need to protect our families. We need to protect our streets. Yeah. But you have someone like, you have a, a massive group with lots of influence and money, like the NRA. Um so the guns are still out there? They're still out People there. People are still getting shot. Like, all this is still happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even though the, you know, the, the consensus the min- amongst mm-hmm. people may be that, look, this is not safe and this is mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. what we want. Yeah, so I think it's just really important for us to consider what power and influence means in this world um, mm. and how, when we look at safety and when we look at health, how we need, we need to start thinking about ways that we can protect each other and what's yeah. important yeah. from that side of things. But, I don't know. Yeah, so I mean, with with big pharma, the it's thing tiring. is that yeah, I mean, with big pharma, clearly. So in the in the case of the opiate epidemic, mm-hmm. like they took this this study mm-hmm. and used that to push opiates, you know, and encourage doctors to prescribe it and X, Y, and Z. And when the US kind of caught up mm-hmm. to the fact that hold on a second, opiates were a lot more addictive than we thought mm-hmm. them to be, and actually, it's not as safe as we suspected. Yeah, there was obviously a big clampdown on it. Which just kind of backfired, really, because actually you've now got a whole cohort of people that are dependent on this medication. Hundreds of thousands, yep. In order to just get by with their normal day-to-day life, mm-hmm. and you've now taken away their supply. Mm-hmm. But they're dependent on it, and they're desperate. And where mm-hmm. do they go? They go to the streets, they go wherever they need to go to mm-hmm. get these tablets. And you've got people that are taking, whether that's street heroin or um, you know street versions of, of fentanyl, yeah. things like that. And this is now... Which is actually a lot more dangerous than just the pure exactly, version. Exactly, because you don't know what they're cut with, you don't know actually what concentration you're getting. No. And now patients are self-administering, they might self-titrate the doses, and you end up with you know fatal cases and actually and actually there's just a paucity of knowledge oh great word but there's such a paucity yeah come through but there's also like just a paucity of knowledge amongst medical professionals as well in Mm. terms of tapering because these things have not been around for long and we haven't we don't know what they do um over amount of years time unless you're a pain specialist you just won't know or unless you specialize with um recreational drugs you just wouldn't know essentially so it's difficult who do the patients look to for information who do they look to for guidance sure they look to doctors yeah and the lucky ones luckier ones with more money will look to pain specialists yeah but we need to start figuring out how we educate patients on the pain medication that we're giving them and we have to start thinking about each personal individual yeah how are we going to address their pain not just for pain relief but how are we going to address them holistically yeah so like like you said like tailored regimes to an individual in a holistic manner and not just saying the answer, the solution to your problem is a pill. Maybe the solution to your problem is psychological therapies. Maybe it's physical therapies. Mm. Maybe it's, um, you know, social like social services and providing social uh, support networks for this person. 
Um, Can I bring up another TV story, actually? What is it? Go on, go on. <laughs> so I was watching this other documentary, um, or just like a series on BBC, and then they've got these like two brothers, and they're both doctors, and they do a lot of research. A lot, um, they're both twins, sorry. Yeah. They do a lot of I research. I love twins. I love twins. I love twins. Sometimes creepy, but I love twins. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they had this study... No, sorry, they walked, through this, they walked this lady through who had chronic pain. Mm. She also had like chronic fatigue syndrome. She mm. had... Um, she may have had some rheumatological conditions, to be honest, as well. But she yeah. had osteoarthritis. She yeah. had IBS. She had all those like oh God, yeah, those, everything under the sun. She had everything under the Bless sun. Her. Like I felt, you felt bad for the condition that she had. Yeah. Essentially, she was on a whole host of pain medications, including like your simple analgesias, mm. but actually just a whole load of opioids as well. Yeah. Um and. Yes, they would help her and take the edge off, but they were just not controlling her pain day to day. Yeah. Essentially, what these doctors did, they kind of held her hand through this process, but they allowed her to, like, sign on to this, like, Tai Chi course. Okay. And if you look at her on day one of that Tai Chi course, she's just, like, in excruciating pain as she's, like, going through all the movements. Yeah. And it's actually very difficult to watch because she's putting herself through so much pain with just, like, I don't know, a raising of her arm or a raising of her leg. God. And then six months down the line, as she continues to do this, with, obviously, a doctor holding her hand, giving her pain relief, and weaning down her regime, this lady looks like a completely different lady by the end of six months. Wow. Not only has she, like, lost weight, because, obviously, she's been able to be more active, um, and just, like, get out of her house, but she is genuinely a happier and more fulfilled person, because she's now able to get out of the house, do her own shopping, do her own cooking. Yeah. And it's just that level of independence that Atul Gawande also talks about in in his book, Being Mortal. Yeah. it's just that level of independence and... And self-sustenance that empowers you. Like, yeah. the more you do, the more you believe you can do. Like, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a positive cycle. Exactly. You go out there, fine, she's she's able to, to do basic movements that before she wasn't able to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's going to positively reinforce herself on her own self-confidence and her own Definitely. self-esteem and her belief on what she's able to accomplish. Definitely. And, and it's just so weird. Herself. And it's weird that you said that because actually, when I look back to one of the most defining things I've ever done, which is probably like the first marathon that I ever did, mm. that was something that I was like, okay, I've only done that half, so I've done ten k's. Yeah. Let me just sign up for a marathon. Also, because I had a run club at that time. Yeah. So I was like, let me sign up for a marathon and let me just try it. Yeah. And after I was able to like literally, as I was crossing that finishing line and coming towards the end. Yeah. You feel it as a culmination of everything that you've worked hard for. Yeah. That you've been able to achieve, and yeah. then you feel like, oh, actually, I can achieve things I set my mind to. Absolutely. So even that in itself was mm. a really big thing that I could take on to different areas every of part, my life. Every part of your life, like yeah. the fact that you. You have successfully done something that maybe previously questioned whether you could or couldn't do mm-hmm. is so empowering. Yeah, and I suppose that brings us onto pain because pain isn't just about the physical no. notion of pain. There is a lot of psychological um, so much. components to it. Absolutely, and a lot yeah. of people. And it's a very well documented fact that depression rates among amongst chronic pain sufferers is mm-hmm. really high because, understandably, like. You know, and you think about the fact that if you're in pain all the time, of course your mood is going to be low. Of course your activity level is going to be low. You can't sleep. You can't sleep. You can't walk to the shops. You can't go to the pub to socialise with your mates. You can't care for your children. You can't fulfil the needs that you want to fulfil as a human being. Precisely. Like, you can't maybe go to work. You lose out on so much of the things that that satisfy and fulfil us and enrich our lives. Mm -hmm. And all you're left with is this constant 
pain and like, that's all that's you know, taken up your mind and if someone turns if you go to your doctor about it and they turn around to you and give you this tablet mm-hmm. and you take it and of course it's going to work because that's physiology you take an opiate it's going to work mm-hmm. but it's going to be momentary so maybe for those three four hours it works mm-hmm. and it makes you feel good but then the pain will come back so you take another and it works and then it makes you feel good but then over time you become tolerant mm-hmm. you start needing more and more and more and more and um you end up with patients taking, or you know, you've just patients, people taking insane fatal doses of mm-hmm. these medications that are dangerous, but they do them in the most innocuous and well-meaning way. These aren't patients that are trying to end their lives. These are patients that are just trying to manage their symptom mm-hmm. and like live their life, yeah. ironically. So why don't you share your story that you told me earlier? So I've done a total of three days on A&E, but um, <laughs> I did encounter a patient that ties in quite nicely with what we've been talking about. So a patient that's been suffering with chronic pain and IBS. Um, and was this was, you know, the patient had had pain relief prescribed by, I'm not quite sure who, but was taking things like MST, um, all the neuropathic um, analgesias, gabapentin and amitriptyline. Yeah. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And it was also given fentanyl lozenges or fentanyl lollipops, which was the first, <laughs> the first time I'd heard of it. And isn't that literally the most like contradictory phrase? You kind of think of it as being like, you know, like a strepsil, but it's, yeah, you literally but it's fentanyl, <laughs> but it's got fentanyl in it, which is mad. And, like, and it just sounds like something easy that you can just like pop in your mouth, yeah. suck away at. Like, like, is it even a medication? No, because it's a sweet. Like, it's so dangerous, isn't oh, it? Oh, bless her. It's so dangerous. And also it blows my mind, but fentanyl is so much stronger than heroin like it's super it's super strong stuff like fentanyl is not playing around Mm. um and this you know poor patient was just taking these fentanyl lollipops and (laughs) had been having quite a lot of pain that day and um what brought her into a&e though so actually it was her daughter that had raised a concern and what was she concerned about so the daughter had noticed the daughter usually gives the medications had noted 
that, that she was mum had ta- no that mum had taken a lot more of her lollipops than she should have taken. I see. I see. Daughter was concerned. Called the ambulance. Um, I mean, luckily, because because it had been sort of over a period of time, um, there hadn't been any sort of uh, adverse effects from the fentanyl. Good. But it kind of goes to show, like when I was talking to the patient about it, and I was sort of just checking, you know, what was her intention, and doing a quick little um, overdose like history. That uh, you know. It was completely innocuous. Like, she did not have any intention of, of ending her life. She was just trying to manage her pain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the fact that there were lollipops and... You know what I mean? You just don't think it's going to be... Going to have a bad effect. And when I was sort of educating the patient on the dangers of fentanyl mm-hmm. and actually how strong it was, the patient was absolutely taken back. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, it was... Uh, and those, those kind of situations that happen are such good reminders to us as clinicians how we need to behave and how we need to safety net certain situations for patients because yes you can prescribe and yes you can get a handle of the of a problem for a patient and give them a solution but actually if you're not giving education about the way they need to um behave towards certain medications Mm. or the certain health beliefs they need to have about these medications Mm. um and let's say we all drink alcohol in this society yeah um, that actually you shouldn't be drinking alcohol because this is going to depress your respiratory system as well yeah um that patient, you you could potentially be putting them at harm. And that's like yeah. one of the first oaths that we take is not do to not, put yeah. pe- people at harm. Yeah, do no harm, right? But giving medication as strong as an opiate, which yeah. will can ref- um, depress your respiratory system, it's so important to be aware of what, what can happen. Yeah, to appropriately safety net. And also to seize these little mini opportunities that you are presented with, often daily, yeah. to just, uh, you know, like dispense you know, not just some opiates, but dispense some, you know, knowledge, <laughs> some little knowledge and some education. Not everyday medication, exactly. Yeah, you know, like, take that chance to empower your patient to exactly. look because after that's their also, own health. And that's also our job as well, because yeah. we ha- we're not just here to prescribe things and we're not here just to do jobs and take We're not just a legal drug dealer, you know, like, yeah, you know. there's more to it. Exactly. Our responsibility also is to educate people on how best to look after their health as well. Yeah. Because there'll be specific things that they won't know before that they came into hospital and had this condition. Yeah. Later on, yes, they might know more than you about their condition. But when you're starting off giving people medication or um, initial management, you really need to start educating them yeah. on what's going on. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because if you've got a patient that's got acute pain, then the pain ladder is clear on what you should be doing. So that's, you know, paracetamol, NSAIDs, weak opiates, strong opiates. Mm-hmm. Fine, we all know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what if this acute pain becomes a chronic pain? So a lot of the cases of patients that become addicted to opiates, mm-hmm. it's cases of patients that have had operations and initially take medications to manage their post-op pain, but quickly sort of, you know, lose a grip on that that pain control and it yeah. spirals into an opiate addiction. Yeah. And I think you've got an interesting story about some of those from the Evening Standard, was it? You were reading something? That was so or... funny. Yeah. Well, it wasn't actually funny at all. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. But um, it was interesting. When we first had that conversation about you seeing that through documentary, yeah, yeah. Big Up Louie, yeah. um, I think it was like a couple of days later, just because I've always like watched literally every single documentary that's out there. But a couple of days later, I was just on the tube and I saw people, like, holding the evening standard. And, like, in big letters on the front, it was talking about the opioid epidemic that's hitting the UK. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my gosh, me and Suba were talking about this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it was... But I make it a point not to read the evening standard in Metro because I think they're, like, 
kind of rubbish news. But um, anyway, so but I was <laughs> that like, that would be another what? episode. That is another episode. <laughs> but I was like, you know what? Let me pick up the evening standard and have a read through what was going on. And when I went home that evening, I went on Google and just had a look to see um, a little bit more about the man behind the story. Mm. Essentially, the Evening Standard, they exposed a story about a man who was doing very well for himself. I think he was like a millionaire, owned businesses. Um, And essentially, he had appendicitis, had some pain post-op, like any any patient who had an operation would, and he was started on some opioids. And those opioids really helped with his pain, and he admits himself that it also gave him a bit of a high and made mm. him feel like he could like get about his day. Yeah. Because actually, it's a psychological um, upper as well, isn't it? Yeah. So, anyway, this man now becomes addicted to opioids, and he's buying, going down Oxford Street, buying like forty yeah. street drugs. No, 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 not buying street drugs. Buying. Buy? MST, like 40 tablets of MST in one go, um, just so he can have his, like, 200 milligrams in a day of MST, which is so high. Which is huge. It is high. But then I suppose it just doesn't discriminate against who is... Who who becomes addicted? I mean, think about, like, Prince and, you know, the, the fentanyl and, you know... I think you were telling me that recently they released the amount of fentanyl mm-hmm. that they detected in his system and it is crazy yeah i wish i remember the figures but it was a it was a crazy amount it might have been like a hundred times more than your like fatal regular dose. Oh, that's see, that's what i mean it's it's insane isn't it but it's an addiction and i it think that's that's the side of it that we should also, t- also talk about because um a lot of it is you know you, you're prescribing your patients opiates but addiction is is sort of like it's you know it's got such a taboo around it and it's mm-hmm. a lot of the time it's sort of seen as being like a a moral failure an intrinsic fault in your psyche that you got addicted it's your fault and yeah look at you you alky look at yeah. you you morphine seeker yeah but actually it's vulnerable people that have been given a tool unfortunately in the case of opiates often by a well-meaning healthcare professional mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's just what they've they've latched on to and it's the way that they're coping and they're managing and it's important to acknowledge that when someone's got an addiction like it's a multifold way of of managing them and you know you need you need your behavioral therapies you need your sort of social therapies you need your and you need your medications in the case of opiates you need mm-hmm. things like methadone you need buprenorphine exactly. to to wean them off the you know the opiates that they're using and that's where the america was going wrong initially and yeah. i suppose fair enough they go they were going wrong because it had never been seen before yeah um, and actually it's only now that we're seeing all the disastrous effects of everything so yeah. i can see why these things are becoming um, more well known in the news yeah um, but initially they were looking they were treating these um addictions from a psychological perspective yeah just as you would with um alcohol exactly um, or different types of addictions maybe like sex addictions i don't gambling. know Things like that. It's, it's a well-documented like way of managing addictions, which we all know is like the twelve-step exactly. regime. But when you're talking about something is physiologically changing, yeah, um, like an opiate, an opiate, exactly something that allows you to move, something allows you to like get up out of bed. Mm. You need to also treat it as a physiological problem. Yeah. But on that note, actually, I read a fact about the US mm-hmm. and it's um, like drug and alcohol, like rehabilitation services and okay. addiction services, okay. where only like it was recently this uh, this fact came from, but only forty percent of sort of their twelve thousand treatment facilities mm-hmm. actually offer medication. Interesting. Alongside behavioural therapies for addiction services, which is 
Richard's less than half. Richard's addiction services. So this is this is broadly speaking. But say if you're considering that the US has got a humongous level of opiate addiction, Mm -hmm. then you know, the fact that only forty percent of their services are offering things like methadone or buprenorphine. Yeah. That is quite crazy. Yeah. Also, did we talk about the fact that the US consumes 80% of opiates <laughs> in the world? And for, what, 5% of the population? Yeah, considering yeah. that they make up 5% of the world's population, they are consuming 80% of opiates produced mm-hmm. globally. And that is uh, prescription as well as illicit. Yeah. That's a crazy fact. It is, that is crazy. Yeah. And that will definitely be, um, that will definitely be per- perpetuated by big pharma and it yeah. can only be perpetuated by big pharma because we're the only countries who are able to afford these medications yeah, absolutely um, and we're the own and it's weird actually because the more that we talk about people having like more choice um, mm. and people wanting better things for their lives yeah actually people want a sense of well-being and the absence of pain is well-being enough in itself of course so of course you'd want this in like these western quote-unquote developed countries yeah um so um, no wonder America is the one that's suffering from it. Yeah, but yeah, and it's 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 just insane to think about the absolute scale of the issue, mm-hmm. and also you know to consider that it's we're not that far behind in the UK, and it's likely to become more of an issue. No, we're probably about the same proportion wise. And even to think about with the UK, like mm-hmm. the whole street drugs thing. Yeah. I remember you were telling me because we have lots of street cred (laughs) (laughs) but we were talking about um well we were just wondering like okay so how much does how how much is it going to set you back if you know you wanted to have a uh, a bag of heroin or so guys i don't know why suba is like googling bags of heroin I don't know what's the what's it's the grams. It's what's, the quant- what's the quantification? Is it mills? Is it ounces? She's like rocks. <laughs> is it is it bags? Is it yeah? Who knows? Those, those rocks of crack. <laughs> and I mean, I have a you know a, a, a source I will not disclose. It's Google, um, which tells me that a bag of heroin costs one. Uh, it costs it would cost you eight dollars. I wonder how many bags, in your terms, and I don't you know what, have a day. But or... I have no idea what a bag means, so that fact is completely <laughs> but it's useless. interesting because actually in the UK, drugs are cheaper anyway, street drugs are cheaper than they would be in the US. And I think that's why... The US that's is, news to me. And that's why the US is having such a problem with prescription medications specifically. Okay. Um... And obviously, also because we've got a public healthcare system, yeah, it's the the prescription thing is a, is also already a bit bit more difficult. Yeah, I suppose you've got so. To... I suppose so. Yeah, I suppose people just have different way of accessing medications and where they can get it from. And it's interesting to know in the US, um, obviously, things are quite expensive on the yeah. street um, in terms of their recreational drugs, but with people who have excess of their I don't know their pain medications, yeah. they have different ways of like selling those for example yeah so there's this thing called pill mills that they used to have back in the days Mm -hmm. where if you had so i mean of a lot of people tend to have excesses of their tablets right and so excess yeah yeah so if you've gone home after an operation and you've got leftover pack of of codeine that you're not going to use you could go to this thing called a pill mill and basically sell it on to another person Mm um and it probably all sounds quite innocent if you're just finding a way of making money to be honest yeah and i mean if it's a case of a patient who's like oh well actually or or another person that you're selling to is like oh yeah actually i I usually take it but you know it's just cheaper for me to to buy it from you then and you're you're probably not buying it directly from the person you're probably buying it through this pill mill as you say yeah um obviously that was all really clamped down on once the negative effects of opiates and the addiction rates all came out and there was a big shutdown on it but obviously people were then turning to 
to dangerous and more dodgy routes of trying to access medications to supplement mm. their addiction at that point you're turning to street heroin you're turning to you know street versions of fentanyl and things like that yeah and those things you just don't know exactly what's in them and you don't know what effects they may have on your body yeah um and i suppose that's a scary thing when you don't have knowledge of what you're putting in your body you don't know exactly how you treat it um or how you can appropriately wean yourself off them yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, as junior doctors, like, we're always prescribing analgesia. So in A&E, for instance, I found this interesting, but whenever patients come in, um, obviously, like, they're in pain, they're un- they're uncomfortable mm-hmm. because of whatever reason, you've not maybe had a chance to assess them yet, yeah. but the nurses will be like, oh, a doc, you know, this patient's come in with loin pain and, you know, dysuria, um, blah, 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 you know, could we get mm-hmm. some... Can we get some analgesia? And you're like, okay, fine, yeah. And you start off with paracetamol. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, but you know, like they've and, and then the nurse says, oh no, doc, they've already had paracetamol at home and they've just had some aspirin. Mm-hmm. I mean, they would say they just had some ibuprofen. And so you're like, okay, well, what's the next step? Uh, codeine, you know. And that's the way that you you progress, you know. Like that's the pain ladder. Yeah. And it's an innocent prescription, but of course, um, something soon comes is probably your oromorph or your morphine. That, those are the next things, mm-hmm. and it's pain. Like pain team services are not so widely available. Like you know, how many of us have access to to a pain team to ask for like pain advice, and how mm-hmm. many of us also acknowledge it as an issue at that early level? Um, if I think back to the patient I spoke about, she was on all of this. You know, her her concoction of tablets that she was taking they weren't given by a pain specialist she was waiting to see a pain specialist and it just made me think like how did she get to a point where she's on fentanyl lollipops without having seen a pain specialist like that is not good so i suppose we also can't demonize these people because or demonize those who prescribe it to them because actually we've got to be practical in the way that we're treating patients and actually if you do have access to medication that you can safely um, prescribe and safely give to patients mm. then you should give it um, obviously the difficulty comes when we don't know mm. how to like manage them in the future or if you have yeah. situations where you're popping all these fentanyl lollipops um, I just think it's important that we also recognise patients as individuals Yeah, and obviously you have your patients like sickle, patients with sickle cell disease when they yeah, have a crisis you'll jump from paracetamol straight to your morphine mm. but with patients with chronic pain Sometimes they may have tried absolutely everything with the GP and they've got six months to wait until they can see a pain specialist. And actually, maybe the pain specialist will advise something very similar to the GP. It's just that we have almost more faith in the pain specialist rather than the general practitioner, even though that might not be a correct assumption to make sometimes. Yeah, you know, that's fair. I think think maybe what I was trying to get at is that it might be, I think, just more important for us to think about asking for specialist advice earlier earlier in that journey yeah because like you said you know accessing pain services is not a straightforward thing and often you know when I was a medical student I got to do a pain clinic did you ever get to do a pain clinic when you were a couple of times and I thought it was really fascinating yes because you've got these patients that come from come with all sorts of different forms of pain with Mm -hmm. all different stories and um, you're managing their pain but it's just it's just really interesting because a lot of them often the first thing they say is like oh I'm so glad to finally be here like Mm -hmm. they've been waiting for so long to get to see pain specialist awkwardly when it's me the final year medical student just pretend (laughs) (laughs) but with all the support of the consultant in Mm -hmm. but you know it's just a case of um acknowledging maybe that we need to trigger that 
referral a bit earlier mm-hmm. so that you can try and manage it as much as you can but maybe just to have in the back of your mind to think is this going to be a complex case is this a patient where we shouldn't be just giving an opiates and actually uh, the british pain society only recommends opiates for acute pain and they recommend a two to three week course of of analgesia of opiate analgesia which then should be weaned down mm-hmm. and if you're needing to have opiates for longer than that period then they're going to have complex pain needs that are going to be multifactorial mm. and you should be thinking about getting you pain should be team. but it's also difficult isn't it because we have to be like we have to be realistic for the system we work in yeah and we have to think can you even access because actually it's not appropriate for you to always call on the inpatient services of no. the pain team no because otherwise it'd be inundated yeah um with every single surgical patient who walks into the door but then you also have to think about, okay, do I have I sent the patient home on sufficient enough medication that will tie them over to see their GP and then tie them over to um, or wait for their referral that will take place in a couple of months' time? Yeah. So it's difficult, isn't it? And we yeah. talk about this all the time. We're working yeah. within a flawed system that doesn't have everything to hand just as you want it. Yeah. So maybe we need to build on our, our education as individual doctors yeah, yeah. Um, particularly if we're working like surgery I don't know what they're doing to address this and they probably have been trying I'm to address sure. it for years mm. I just don't know because I'm not a surgeon yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but post-op pain is actually a, an area of like a lot of contention I remember you were telling me really interestingly about mm. your ortho job yes yes I was and how you guys had a great service where well, the pain team worked a lot with you guys well you have to because with orthopedics you have the same presentation yeah. coming all the time so whether that's like your hip your knee your tibia anything yeah. your arm you've broken it yeah. and you break it haven't you though <laughs> that's uh, orthopedics in a nutshell that's orthopedics in a nutshell <laughs> fixing broken bones but once yeah. you've like fixed your broken bone that's gonna be intensely painful yeah so the pain team will have a, some sort of like regime in which you start patients on so-and-so, so medications for this amount of time. Mm. They need to be weaned off in this amount of time. GP will see them initially, and then if they have points at so-and-so, it'll, it'll be triggered by the GP for them to be seen by pain team. Yeah. Now, that just works so beautifully when you Absolutely. fit into a certain criteria. Yeah. But if you're not part of the orthopaedic team, I mean, sorry, if you're, yeah. not part, you're not an orthopaedic patient, then you probably don't have the same luxuries because yeah. those other patients are a little bit more complex and different. And everyone has a different way of, you know, like approaching pain management and different consultants will want things like yeah. a different way, different registrars will have different yeah. recommendations for you. Some people are like really generous with the opiates. Some people are not so generous with the opiates. Yeah. But, and... I, but I remember I learned so much from just like observing the pain team and seeing what they did every single yeah. time and kind of figuring out the different nuances in their management yeah. so I became more confident as a clinician and I've probably lost that now since not doing yeah. orthopedics for so long but um it was definitely good to know that yeah. there are really smart people <laughs> around <laughs> but the themes that you've learned from there kind of seep into your practice and mm-hmm. influence the way that you're approaching pain management yeah I hope so anyway yeah I'm sure it does which is really helpful and really great for your patient so with things like the pain team's plans what I found really interesting mm. and I kind of is this going to be a reference to our last episode maybe it is it's kind of like a smart goal I mean <laughs> it's having like a really structured plan because it's it's not just okay managing your pain for now managing your pain for now managing your pain for now tiding you over to tiding you over to this it's kind of a case of like we're going to do give you this try and wean you off then and then ask the GP to do this and if that doesn't do the job then 
this will happen. Mm-hmm. It's a really thorough, full plan. Yeah. And I think that's what's important to think about with and pain ca- management. And it catches those people who have disproportionate pain, doesn't it, as well? Yeah, because actually mm-hmm. if someone's not happily going along that pathway, then something's not right. Mm-hmm. And they are people that... Those are the people that are going to be at risk. Those mm-hmm. are the people that are going to go on to have issues mm-hmm. or end up in, in bad situations yeah. where, they're, yeah. where they're taking way too much. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, n- their pain's just not being managed well. Exactly. And that actually just might be a fact that we haven't quite dealt with the cause of the pain because mm. we all know with like chronic pain and even acute pain it's so affected by who you are and the way that you live your life mm. so whether you're get, not getting enough sleep or whether you're more low in mood mm. then actually all those things can really impact on your perception of pain and how you're feeling in the pain of course um, and it's very real but it's something that will change from person to person yeah so maybe for these people something like cbt is important or maybe for yeah. s- other people actually doing i don't know some yoga or tai physical chi therapy is important. or like physio or yeah, taking into account occupational therapy and thinking okay what adjustments could we do in their mm-hmm. household to make certain things a bit more suitable for them so they can yeah. get on with their life the way they were before exactly and maybe that will relieve a burden for them for example yeah or increasing then- even something as simple as a package of care to make making sure that this patient is just washed in the morning. Yeah. That might make them psychologically yeah. happier. The quality of their life will go up and then actually, like we were talking about earlier, that, that positive cycle sort of kicks in and mm-hmm. you feel more empowered to, to get back to living the life that you were living. Or at least now accepting a different baseline. But, you definitely, know, that's definitely. what it's all about. Um, but also, like, say... say you know, that's the sort of like a rose-tinted vision of how things could be. Mm-hmm. But if we're looking at how things are, so if someone is addicted... <laughs> what if, someone, if someone is addicted to an opiate, like, what services are there for them? <clears throat> and, how, you know, how do you encourage them to engage with those services? So, obviously, there's addiction, addiction services mm-hmm. locally, but it can be complicated sometimes. Because I know that our, so the hospital that we work at, straddles two two boroughs yes it does and that makes things difficult because actually when you're referring patients to things like alcohol and drug misuse services it depends on where they live and then that influences what facilities are available to them Mm -hmm. and you know one of the boroughs fine they've got good facilities the other one it's a bit yeah and you've got to be completely flexible in what you do yeah like i remember i had a patient also in a and Mm. she was like a young girl maybe about 16 17 anyway um and she needed some safeguarding mm. and unfortunately she didn't live in the borough in which she presented to yeah. and then the borough that she did live in um, had a service that you couldn't access overnight and this girl came in overnight So and we couldn't keep her in hospital just because we needed, needed her to, to access them yeah. anyway I gave her a number and I told her to call and just because she's 16 and 17 I just had it in me that she wasn't going to call yeah. so I asked her just to make sure she left the right mobile number the next morning when I went back to work I gave her a call just to see had she, she had she yeah, done yeah, it yeah. I was like hey <laughs> and then she hadn't done it I said can you call them now and make sure you give me a reference number even though I like made up the fact that it might even be a reference number <laughs> lol let's hope there's a reference exactly. <laughs> I was like whatever she, that'll mean she calls him anyway she called the team that, that she needed to call and then she gave me this like reference number which I noted down and I probably have and did nothing na- with <laughs> nothing with but just the fact that um I had to kind of work my way around the system yeah. to ensure that a patient was safe. Yeah, That's things that we have to do for any scenario, yeah. regardless of what it is. Because yeah. actually, if we choose to work in certain areas, like if we choose to do foundation programme training and we are an A&E doctor, you have to make that a specialty work for your patients yeah. because it's their health and their safety that's paramount. 
Um, I and that's it, your priority at the end of the day is like the safety of yeah, your patient. Yeah, Am I getting paid for this job? I think you should just do the job that you're meant to do. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, some people <laughs> haven't got that memo yet. But anyways, anyways. <laughs> It's been interesting, isn't it, this yeah, topic? Yeah, it has been. I think we've covered a lot of things, haven't yeah. we? And it's been... And it's, isn't it weird how every single time we come back to the same themes of community and what community yeah, management means? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, your patients, they're not spending their lives in a hospital. Nah, like, mate. They're going home and they that's where their lives are and that's where they exist and that's where they are who they are. And that's what you're trying to get them to. So... Mm-hmm. If they need support, like, it's in the community. And the services they're going to need are in the community. Exactly. And as hospital doctors, we need to keep that in the back of our minds and have an awareness of how best, you know, you're going to enable your patient to access those services and to maintain their quality of life. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But also a lot of things that we've spoken about today, like, you know, they were very reflective, weren't they? Mm -hmm. And also things for us to take back to our practice and continue to maybe use in our practice, but... Definitely. It feels like a portfolio session. In <laughs> like a good reflection on the way that we work and the way we need to work. But it's because things are always changing in medicine. Yeah. Things are always changing. Look, we wouldn't have known this back in the 70s. In the 70s, you'd be gonna, like, or more for everybody. That this was going to be a problem in the 90s. And yeah. then in the 2000s, everyone was going to die, including people like Prince. Yeah. And like the guy from Glee and all of these yeah. different um, people. And another, what, 350,000 people in yeah. a year. God. It's actually madness, but it's important that we just keep on top of what's going on and what's changing. Yeah, and that we have an awareness of it and that we're able to, like... Change practice? Exactly, change practice, educate your patients, encourage them to live the healthiest and the best life they can. Yeah, and recognise that we don't know everything ourselves. Preach it. Preach it. Right, I think that was a nice, like... Exactly. I feel like I went to church. Yeah, (laughs) I feel cleansed. But no, thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Yeah, thank you always. And uh, feel free to please leave us a positive review. And also subscribe so you can get notifications. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, leave us like, a five-star five rating, naturally. Five star. <laughs> <laughs> and check us out on Instagram. Follow us if you have an Instagram account. One day we will make Twitter pop up out of nowhere. But it's also yeah. about getting time for us, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is. It is. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, see you guys and catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.